Hello everyone, welcome to this fantastic room at the Victoria and Albert Museum. My name's Jack Thurston and I don't have anything to do with the Victoria and Albert Museum, but I do present a radio programme about cycling. And it gives me enormous pleasure to sort of try to bring the, uh, it's the, it's the bike show roadshow, isn't it? It's like the Radio One roadshow, but the Resonance FM bike show roadshow. But what we're going to try and do over the next hour is tell you a secret and very selective history of bicycle cultures in Britain. And I don't know if you've had this sort of strange feeling walking up through all these amazing artefacts and beautiful artworks in the Victoria and Albert Museum and thinking that, well, not only have they got stage costumes of <laughs> David Bowie, but we're coming to listen to a talk about bikes. It does feel a bit sacrilegious, um, and I hope uh, you'll find it rewarding. And, and if you don't find it rewarding, we're not going to worry if you just walk up the aisle and out of the door, because there's so much to see. There's flatland BMX going on out there um, as we speak. And when I say we, I'm, I'm joined by a, a cast of old lags of the bike show, people who've appeared on the, on the bike show who are introduced in turn uh, during, during the next hour. So, a secret history of bike cultures. Secret, it might not be so much of a secret if you're steeped in bicycle history, but I thought secret might help fill the room, and it looks like it has done that at least. And I think that there'll be something that you don't know in what happens in the next hour, even if you do know some of it. But I certainly do think it is secret in terms of our mainstream culture and our mainstream understanding of of uh, our society, the kind of things that we're going to be talking about. And that really is the core point of, I guess, what I'm going to be arguing is that there is an otherness to cycling that has been there from the very beginning and it's still there and it's come in lots of different shapes and sizes and forms and, and dynamics. And I think the question we ask ourselves now, looking into the future, because we are possibly on this tipping point, certainly in this city, of cycling becoming not niche, not ghettoized, not marginal. And what does that mean? And what does the history of bicycle cultures and the current celebration of bicycle cultures that's going on tonight here, what does that mean for where we go in the future? Anyway, we're going to go from here to here, via here, here, here. That's the Hernhill Velodrome, 1929. Who was down watching the Good Friday? Yeah, a few hands there. Was it good? Did you win some money on the betting? Do they bet down there? No? Okay. Haven't got the tote down there. You can stop in there, of course. And there. So here we are, 1869, February 1869. Paris has just been roused into a fever of excitement by this new thing called the Velocipede, invented by, some would say, Pierre Lallemand, others would say Pierre Michaud and his brother Ernest. Um, but this is John Mayle. And he was one of the first people to have a go on one of these machines um, in February 1869 at a gymnasium in Old Street. Um, and you can see it's, it's not really a bicycle, it's a velocipede. Pedal it on the front, wooden wheels, very heavy. But he rode the first London to Brighton bicycle ride, which is still the biggest bicycle ride um, of, the, of, of the year, isn't it? And we'll hear a little bit more about how that happened later on. They made it in about 12 hours, and given that someone had actually walked the distance in less than that, it was a, a sort of an event of certain amount of significance. People got very excited about these things. 
Um, and that's Pierre Lallemand, uh, another, another look at, the, uh, uh, at this machine. And after this ride down to uh, Brighton, people went on longer trips on these bikes. So this is a press report from um, that 1860, 1970, Lund Liverpool to London on bicycles by the Liverpool Velocipede Club. And uh, you can see that they're referred to as Velocipedians here, Velocipedians, not cyclists. So we're still pre-cycling here. And one point though I want to read out about their tour. It says, at some of the villages, the boys clustered around the machines and when they could, caught hold of them and ran behind until they were tired out. Many inquiries were made as to the name of the queer horses, or some calling them whirligigs, menageries, and wildpices. Between Wolverhampton and Birmingham, attempts were made to upset the riders by throwing stones, setting a pattern that is with us to this day. They were something very odd on, on the roads, these bicycles, these velocipedes. And you've got to remember that the bicycle at that point was this new thing on the roads, and the roads had been neglected since the advent of the railways, which had taken a lot of long-distance traffic off the roads. And so roads were sort of places of... They were, they'd been neglected, their surfaces were quite poor, but they were probably used for all kinds of fun things, people playing in them, and, and, and suddenly these people coming clattering through on these, on these uh, machines would have looked a strange sight. And it's almost as if the boot is on the other foot in what we think about today in terms of the motor-dominated society. The bicycle, the velocipede in those days was this new insurgent technology that was making these public spaces quite hostile. So here we go, Hampton Court, a little bit later, they've gone to the high wheeler, um, so they could go a bit faster, but similar technology, spoked wheels, I'm not sure if those are pneumatic tires, but we're edging towards the bicycle that we know today. You can see they're in sort of semi-military garb, and this is, um, this is the CTC's styles of costume, the cycling, Cyclist Touring Club, the main organisation of cycling at the time, styles of costume recommended by the CTC. The CTC uniform, it was a little bit like fox hunting or shooting. It was sort of another branch of country sport practised by the bourgeoisie who had the money and the time to do leisure because in those days most people didn't have leisure time. The, the same CTC catalogue has little swatches of the various tweeds that you could have approved by the CTC and your uniform made up according to your taste. And this is, the, uh, this is Walter Welford, who is the president of the Bicyclist Touring Club, which is the pre-CTC organisation, cutting a rather refined figure there um, as, uh, as the head of the national, or secretary of the National Cycling Organisation, about 1880, I think. And here we see a uh, painting in the Hyde Park, I think. Um, women out on their bikes, but you know, very well dressed, refined. This was, this was an upper class sport. And there are lots of accounts of you know, how Viscount this and Lady that are getting on in their bicycling lessons, because it was a thing to do in society. But it was also the thing that could take you on amazing adventures. And this chap here is John Foster Fraser with his two friends. They rode around the world and wrote a terrific book about it, which is a sort of masterpiece of, of Victorian understatement. And here they are. This is in the 1893, 1894, that sort of time. Here they are crossing the Khyber Pass or somewhere like that, asking the way. And then, well, fantastic understatement, isn't it? You know, I think, I think the modern translation is epic, but uh, rough cycling, there we go. He's got his pith helmet on there. And of course, 
cycling was not just offering people the chance to travel around the world under their own steam, but was offering a sort of source of liberation for women who were, you know, had suffered forever under, a sort of under this patriarchal society. And cycling was part of that thing to do with you know, also smoking and, and other sort of social loosenings that obviously culminated in getting the vote, useful stuff like that. But riding the bike was very much part of, part of that whole mix. There was also the continued suspicion of cyclists. And here we see a cartoon of a, of a crash involving a horse and cart and a bicycle. And the sort of intimation is that this is a bad thing. This is this foolhardy bicyclists and they get their just desserts when they land on their head. And it was not very long before you then had these sorts of cartoons where now the cyclist is going through the windscreen of the car as the cars come along in the early 19th century and the caption says, so inconsiderate, Jove might have killed us. I must have a wire screen fixed up to the front of my automobile. The cyclist has gone from the, the, the newcomer, the insurgent technology, to being this sort of out-of-date anachronism that is standing in the way of the progress that's represented by the motor car. And it happened in a, in a breath, in a couple of decades. And now I'd like to ask, to take to the microphone, Ruth Beale, who's going to help out with this next section. Ruth is... Hello. Hello, Ruth. Welcome. <laughs> Ruth's an artist who did a project a couple of years ago about the uh, Clarion Cycling Clubs. So I'm going to try and set the scene for you and then ask you what it was that interested you in the Clarion. Because at the time, the cities and the towns were smoky places, pretty unpleasant. Poorer people who weren't out in Hyde Park cycling were having a pretty hard time of it. And it was, it was a kind of, there was a revolution in the air. There was this socialism from devolving, I guess, from William Morris, this sort of English brand of socialism, not the sort of red Bolshevism. And out of that came a cycling club. Can you tell us how that happened? Um, so, yeah, so we're talking about the 1890s, um, and uh, it was with the popularity of the rise, or the, the, the availability of the safety bike, which was, rather than being the wooden philosophy, it was a mass-produced bike that people could buy and people could afford. So... There was a boom, there was a general cycling boom, and there was this kind of interesting marrying between uh, socialism and cycling, which, is, which was the Clarion Cycling Club, where the cyclists would meet and um, talk about socialism, but also sort of spread the word. I mean, well. there was this paper, wasn't there, by Robert yeah. Blatchford, Robert Blatchford who yeah. wrote, who was the editor of the Clarion newspaper. So the Clarion was a newspaper, and they kind of delivered it on bikes. Yeah, they sort of ride out from the towns. So lots of the cycling, I mean, you might know, lots of the cycling clubs, um, particularly in the north of England, were based in industrial towns, and it was an opportunity for people to get out into the countryside. And that, obviously goes very well with the ideas about socialism, about taking ownership of um, those places and um, the sort of opportunity of getting out and um, sort of escaping. So they were delivering the newspaper and the propaganda, but they were also kind of having a good time together and doing something vaguely edifying from a personal point of view. So Yeah, I think they're having a great a, time. And then, so you're doing something similar here. <laughs> So um, tell us, talk us through this picture. So I did a project a few years ago with another artist, Karen Brenneman, and um, we decided we were going to cycle from London to Liverpool, and we um, were going to meet lots of different cyclists on the way. So we met um, Ian Clark from the Fenland Clarion, who's now, I think, the uh, National Secretary. And basically we sort of 
have hopped our way up, staying with different people. It took us four days, and we didn't plan the route. We um, used their knowledge to kind of take us on to the next step. And so in doing so, we sort of did, we researched the Clarion, and then we, when we got to Liverpool, we um, did a, a sort of discussion event with various people, like a, a cycle champion and a trade unionist and a, um, yeah, different and, and, people. And the slogan here, which is the Clarion slogan, what? This, so this was this this was the Clarion slogan, and it was from uh, William Morris's Dream of John Ball, and it says, "Fellowship is life, and lack of fellowship is death." Pretty and stark message, it isn't it? This bit kind of quite amusing, but um, well, I don't know if it was amusing in the 1890s. <laughs> no. So people were dying of I don't know cholera. Were they dying of cholera still? And then I don't know. But um, um, how yeah, did I mean, you? It how is did... serious. It is serious. But this has promise and um, yeah. optimism. And this is kind of like, you know, if you're not in the club, that's it. <laughs> this is another one. Um, so this, for me, um, talks about the, what interests me about the Clarion, which was that uh, this marrying of um, leisure and politics that it isn't just about work. And there's, a, there's another quote about kind of like, you know, we, we graft all week and we, we, we do the work. And there's, there's, there was always this conflict in the Clarion still about like, how much should it be about propaganda? How much should it be about racing and having a good time? Well, yeah, I mean, this kind of answers a part of that question, doesn't it? I mean, this is the Bradford Clarion parade in, I think, the 1920s. So this does look a little bit like Reclaim the Streets, which we're going to come to later on. But it's this quite slightly extraordinary bicycle parade, isn't it, really? And then this is the Clarion House in Hanforth in Cheshire. So they had these places to go. Yeah, there were clubhouses that were sort of centres, and, um, and there were also lots of other kinds of clubs. So there was um, choirs and handicraft and rambling, and, and it was that period when people were in clubs and were members of things, but also your politics might be expressed through these things. And, you know, I think part of that is about society and but it's also about communication you know that, that that's how you found out about stuff and um you didn't just go on the internet and have that's a look. the interior of the of the club there and then this is uh, the communal work going on some washing up uh, drying up by the looks of it and this is the last carrion house isn't it oh, just at, just by there. nelson in lancashire where incidentally paradise is based so if you go up that part of the world you can do both and this was their, they, they celebrated 100 years last year, and this was, I think, this was a celebration. Of, the, of this house? Of the Clarion House. I mean, I, don't, I think this is not actually this house, but I think of the institution that is now um, based there. And it's, it's a charitable institution or a trust or something like that, so that it can't be sold off and, you know, they can't, they can't make money out of selling that. It's, it's in a beautiful spot, um, right, on, in the Pennines. The Clarion Cycling Club still exists, obviously. I was, um, the, the membership has dipped... Um, steadily declined, but now it's gone up again. And I think it's sort of back up to 1960s levels, which would be consistent with people being interested in cycling clubs. I don't know, is anyone here a member of the Clarion? No. <laughs> well, a little bit nearer to home. This is, these are the ugly huts. They're not, well, they're in ugly in Essex, but they're the club huts of the 32nd Association, a little bit nearer to London. And they organise some rides, and it's well worth going out to those and, and, and meeting the people who built, well, or who's... Uh, I don't know if they, any of the people who left who still who built those houses in the, in, in the 50s, but they are, you know, again, this sort of communal getting together and doing stuff. Well, thanks very much, Ruth.
And there's a, a film clip now which I think really, even if it's fictional, it sums up to me this whole idea about getting out into the countryside with the bike that I think is very important in this period, whether it's the Clarion or anybody else. And this is an excerpt from Ken Russell's life of Edward Elgar. And the background is that Elgar is a young, penniless composer. This is 1890. He's just moved up to London, hopefully trying to get work, got married, had a baby, couldn't get any work, haven't got a penny to rub together, and end up going back to Worcestershire because um, they can't afford to stay in London. There was no pony anymore, but Elgar bought himself a bike, and despite all setbacks, almost certainly felt an enormous relief. head was still full of great orchestral themes, not one of which he'd so far ever heard played. My idea is that there is music in the air, music all round me, he once said. I do all my composing in the open. At home, all I have to do is write it down. It wasn't just Elgar who was getting inspiration from being out on his bike or in the company of, of cyclists. Artists, particularly on the other side of the channel, were finding it very interesting, this new bicycling. The speed that they were able to achieve was just was something absolutely novel um, and the thrill of the, of, of the competition. And here's an illustration by uh, Henri Toulouse-Lautrec, supposedly based on sketches that he'd done when he'd come over to the Catford track in London to, uh, to, to look at the, the bike racing going on here. And this is for advertising a, a new bicycle chain. And Alfred Jarry, of course. And then you can see uh, more, there's a Cubo Futurist painting. And the Futurists themselves, absolutely so mesmerized by this man-machine, the sort of cyborg creation. We think of cyborgs as something of our times, but they were cyborgs of the early 20th century. We're entering into the machine age, and that's what, that's what the futurists were really into 
was, was this, this machine, this mass production, the man and the machine. And, and the mass production of the bicycle meant that people could get bicycles. If enough people have bicycles, there's going to be a market for people who are writing about cycling. And Tim Dawson, who is the cycling, a cycling columnist on the Sunday Times and also editor of Cycling Books, um, book review website, Tim is going to make the case that this chap here is the first, and if not the first, then the best early writer about bicycle culture. Because I think at this point we can say that there is bicycle culture. Uh, William Fitzwater Ray, who wrote under the name of Kuklos, and from, I mean, he was an early adopter of a, of a high wheeler, but then from 1895 onwards, for nearly 40 years, he wrote a weekly column in national newspapers about cycling. So almost certainly has a claim to be the, uh, I think probably the most widely read writer about cycling in the English language, having produced weekly columns for, for, for quite as long as he did. And the interesting thing about his writing, I think, is that if you look at the sort of things that he was saying, a lot of the prejudices that I think a lot of us as cyclists have now, you can find their origins in his writing in the 1910s. So, for example, the idea that the bicycle is the exceptional product of the manufacturing age, which I think a lot of us feel instinctively, but he was saying that, you know, nearly 100 years ago. The idea that there's something transcendental about riding in the countryside. He was the first person, I think, to, have, to, to, start, to start writing about that. And even, even quite mundane sort of tips and tricks like um, never carry something on your back that you could carry on your bicycle. He was one of the first people who was saying to his readers, you know, this has been my experience out in the sticks on my bike. So what, what first drew you to him um, before you had read all his stuff and that you've just described? What, was it just curiosity or had you heard about him by repute? I, I came across one of his books and I read it and, and, I, and I thought this was a kind of electric thing. And realising that he was writing this weekly column in a newspaper, I, I felt a sort of certain personal affinity with him. So as well as writing newspaper articles, he was on these lecture tours. He was. I mean, there was a big culture of, of these lecture tours and he was by no means the only person doing it. Many of them had these sort of rather fanciful pen names. So Kuklos was one, Wayfarer, Bywayman, uh, Petronella was a woman who was on this circuit. And they would take, I mean, the lantern lectures they were known as, so they would take photographs while they were on their tours and would then go round halls up and down the country showing their slides and talking about the sort of amazing adventures they'd had on their bikes. And admission would almost always be uh, with, with these sort of rather nice, uh, I mean, this is actually an A5 programme that you're looking at here, and you'd buy that for a shilling, and then they always had a little tear-off slip, a, a little tear-off corner that showed that you'd gone in. I mean, I guess in a pre-television age, uh, in, in, in an age when there wasn't much documentary filmmaking being done, they were turning an awful lot of people onto the idea that set off on your bicycle and there's an amazing world to be discovered. This is, this is an illustration of his. As well as writing words, he's yep. penning these drawings. And I find it quite interesting in this period that we seem to get a, a, a cyclist gaze coming mm -hmm. out. You know, what is, how is it to present your tour, whether it's in a written form or whether in a, a pictorial sense? And we, we see, I mean, I think in the work of Frank Patterson, which is a bit later, we see these images that I think are sort of hardwired into our modern conceptions of, of cycling of a certain, in, a, in a certain era, cycle touring. 
It was about escaping from the cities. It was about connecting with an essential and, you know, in the imagination, unchanging uh, England, unchanging Scotland, Wales and Ireland that people could go and visit. The criticism of it is that it's very preservationist. Yeah. It's very much about a lovely landscape with you on the bicycle cycling through it on a nice little lane and nothing else, nothing else going on. There's just you in the sublime. I mean, it kind of draws on that Victorian era of the sublime, doesn't I, I, it? I, I mean, it clearly is wrapped up in the Romantic movement and, you, you know, Wordsworth, I mean, the whole, the whole sense of the drama and beauty of the outdoors that you would see as, you know, the, the, you, you were seeing some kind of wilderness and, and having exposure to something which is, is uh, somehow essential. I mean, all of which, in the case of the British Isles, is, is a bit of a fantasy because almost all our landscapes are manufactured in some shape or other. But yes, I mean, pa Patterson in particular worked from postcards. He didn't visit the places himself at all. He was very he capable. A bike, did he? No, he was very capable at drawing cyclists and he was very capable at reproducing photographs, but it was always a trick, I mean, really. And in this one, we've got the tea here cyclists welcomed. It's almost about consuming the countryside and then moving on. Um, so it's very much a tourist gaze. I personally think that a bicycle enhances the scene in a village, and you know, it's, you don't do the same damage to a place by cycling through it. I think you actually make it better than if you drive a car through it. And, and I, I was in Cookham last summer, a beautiful village, Stanley Spencer home and all that. And it's just choked with cars. And you almost can't see the village for the cars. And the bicycle doesn't, doesn't do that. A bicycle has begun to seem like a bit of a visual cliche in, 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 in pictures, but it, you, know, you can see through it. It doesn't, I mean, whereas a car or a van obscures, um, a bicycle merely frames and, and sort of provides a bit of um, you know, visual, I don't want to use the term eye candy, but you know, it, 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 it is, it's a kind of... It, 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 well, it's something in the foreground, Tim. It is. It's something in the foreground. It is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the National Art Library. I can't believe I just said that. Um, <laughs> you spend a lot of time reading books about cycling, some of them good, um, a lot of them bad from what you told me in the past. What do you think defines good writing about riding? I think anybody who, who chooses to record rides that they've done and, and share that with people, I mean, I think that's a, a great thing and, and, and a legitimate activity. And I would, you know, I would always encourage more people to try and write down and try and express the experiences they've had. The amount of that that becomes great writing that would, you know, that deserves to be seen by a wider audience is relatively small, inevitably. But I suppose it's... it's it's the ability to capture, or it's the ability to tell stories, it's the ability to, to turn what's a very linear narrative, I started out in A and I got to B, having some scrapes and adventures on the way, and turn that into either something which talked very vividly about the landscape you encountered, or uh, kind of amusingly or distractingly about the, um, the scrapes that you got into. And the mistake a lot of people make is to imagine that there's something sufficiently extraordinary about the journey itself that that will make the story from it. But, you know, as we've seen, people were riding around the world in, in the 1890s, and that really was amazing because there were almost no roads and government in the conventional sense and law and order in the conventional sense hadn't got to most of the world that they were visiting. Somebody cycling around the world now, well, you know, it's an amazing physical accomplishment, but you've got to be quite a good writer as well to make that into an enjoyable story for other people, I think. Okay, well, send your bicycle travelogues to Tim Dawson at... <laughs> Thanks, Tim. Thank you. We have another great Patterson drawing here, which I think brings in that theme of fellowship and, and riding together uh, through the night here. The caption here is good company. And we'll come back to night rides uh, in a little while. Sport. Sport cycling. This doesn't look like a sport cyclist, but it is a sport cyclist. 
Guy Andrews. Come and join me here on the front of the screen. Guy is the editor of Ruler magazine, founding editor of Ruler magazine, which is a terrific magazine. It's been going since 2006. Six. 2006. And I think it's very much part of bike culture in 2013. And what's going on here, Guy? Well, it looks like this is a, a time trial, um, I would suggest. This guy's riding fixed wheel, but also he's riding all in black because once upon a time, racing, competing on the, the open road was actually regarded as illegal. And um, in order to do so, um, in order to race at weekends, you had to be um, fairly inconspicuous. So hence the, uh, the alpaca, they used to call it, which was, um, was this, this gentleman was wearing the jacket. It was deemed to make you look kind of, I say, inconspicuous, but um, also like you were probably, I don't know, riding to work or delivering something. The interesting thing was is that um, riding alone um, was regarded as being the best way to stay uh, unnoticed. Riding in a, in a bunch is a road race like you would at the Tour de France was obviously regarded as totally insane and obviously was totally outlawed in this country uh, up until... I think you could probably give me the date, Jack, but it was... Well, wartime, war after, yeah. after the war, really, wasn't yeah, it, yeah, I think? it was post-war. Because um, there was some bunch racing on circuits, and there was track racing. This is the, the slide we saw, uh, saw earlier at Hearn Hill. But the national bodies that regulated cycling, they very much bought into this idea of time-trialling, riding one at a time against the clock, and not having the kind of bunch racing that, you, that we're familiar with as, as, uh, in cycle sport today and the, what yeah. would have been the dominant cycle sport at that time on the continent. I mean, it makes the channel a lot wider, doesn't it, it at that it point? Does, it does. I, I mean, it, it, it's hard to say exactly why that happened. I mean, I don't think anybody can actually put their finger on it exactly. I think it was most people regarded as riding in a bunch as, as cheating. You know, it was some sort of... You know, you, you, weren't, you weren't doing it on your own. And I think that was one of the reasons why time trialling still is today very, very popular in this country, because it's something you do on your own. The race of truth. The race of truth. Here we are in uh, just after the war. This is a uh, Diamond Jubilee celebration of the cycling magazine. And I hope that when Ruler turns 60, you'll hire out the Royal Albert Hall. Yeah, and, love to. And fill it with the fastest cyclists of... Uh, let me do my... 2066? Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, hang on. 20, yeah, 2066. Yes. There you go. And have a great big party. And this was a big party. Um, they had trapeze artists. They had dancers. They had roller racing. The culmination, the, the grand finale of the show was this cyclist come over from the continent on rollers and they, and they were rolling rollers. So you can see here, he's actually... So he's rolling his static bicycle the wheels are being turned on, the, on these rollers and he's showing his pedalling action but there's a turntable under here so he's being spun around um, with floodlits and all changing light colours coming down and illuminating it and who is this that is being illuminated? Well this is Fausto Coppi who's um, probably the greatest ever uh, certainly the greatest ever Italian cyclist and arguably the greatest cyclist that ever lived but um, Fausto was, um, was, was quite taken I think uh, as was Jacques Oncatil a bit later on with with British cycling, he thought the whole idea that, that all they did in Britain was time trialling. I think he was quite taken with this whole idea. But anyway, he was invited over, no doubt, at the time the, uh, the, the RTTC, the Road Time Trials uh, Council, paid a, a huge amount of money for him to come 
and perform like this at, at the Royal Albert Hall? Because I'm sure that a professional cyclist these days would not want to do that. <laughs> well, they were marvelling at his technique. I mean, yeah. the, the accounts of Eric are, are, are extraordinary. And it was his first, I think, a first appearance in, yeah. in Britain. Let's take a look at the following year's Tour de France. This is the Tour de France of 1952, as seen through British eyes in this um, quite rare early colour film. Day 13 is in many ways a lucky day with easier going. Down through the gorges descending to the Côte d'Azur. Down to the sea where the playground of Europe shimmers in the sun. While holidaymakers take their ease near the torrid Mediterranean, the tour turns west along the coast. But sailors still don't care, not this one anyway. For him, heat means sleep and a life on the ocean lays. For the riders, there can be no relaxation. Past fields scorched by the heat, along roads parched and dusty, they push on up to Aix-en-Provence. Looking down on this scene of endeavor is the pitiless sun. Young and old form an almost unbroken line along the 3,000 miles. The populations of towns along the route are doubled. This is indeed the greatest show on earth, and no effort is spared to witness the spectacle. The lead is still held by Copy. Second is Close from France. Third, the Spaniard Ruiz. The list of retirements is mounting. Out of 122 riders who set out from Brest, only 82 remain. From Aix to Avignon. Between the two towns lies the menacing peak of Mont Ventoux, a 6,273 feet ascent into the clouds. Although Coffey is leading the race as a whole, this stage is won by the lion-hearted Robic. His tremendous effort is rewarded by an ovation at the end of the day at Avignon. En route for Perpignan. At the end of this hot and exhausting stage, one of the étapes de chaleur, there is just enough strength left to assuage a raging thirst. Amazingly exotic, isn't it? Must be to British eyes. It's like a holiday in a bike race and different, isn't it? I mean, it was a different world, the continental bike racing, and people who followed it in this golden era we look back at, the 50s and the 60s, they would have had to go out of their way to follow the Tour de France and the Giro d'Italia and the classics. Well, the only way would be to go there. And um, Jock Wadley, who was uh, a famous editor of um, Courier and Sporting Cyclist, he, uh, he famously would go, literally get on his bike and, and, and get on the ferry and go over to France and follow the tour. And follow the tour on his bike and, and hitch a ride with uh, one of the French journalists or whatever, but he would, he would follow it himself. And, it was pretty much the only way to do it. And, it, and, the, and being interested in continental cycling was, was a very outre 
thing to be interested in, you know, not, not if you're reporting it, but if, if you're just a, a cyclist or a, a sports fan, it, it would have been very hard to come by that information. We think it's very easy now. You know, you see who's won a, a, a race on Twitter within two seconds um, of them crossing the line. You know, you, people would have been scrabbling around to find French language well, I, I think papers only, and things like that, wouldn't they? The only analogy I can come up with is if you're, you're an Italian and you, you're into English cricket. And it would be the same, it would be the same in, in reverse. And, and that's basically what continental road cycling in those days, as it's, as it's known, um, was like. I mean, it was, it was totally inaccessible unless you actually went there. And, and that, the whole additional language that, that yeah. is used to describe bike racing, which is still which is familiar with us now, you know, that would have been um, something that people, were, I suppose they would have enjoyed this difference. It would have been an obstacle, but overcoming that obstacle would have been part of the satisfaction, like tracking down some Howling Wolf 45 import at, at the docks in Liverpool, like you yeah, hear, no, you know, people talking about I, it. I, th I think the, the, analogies, the analogies with music, are, 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 you know, is, it was at the time, it was a bit like some sort of obscure jazz that, you know, you had to, you had to eke out from, uh, from, from a miroir de cyclisme, you know, a French magazine or Beaky Sport from, from Italy, you know, it would, it, that, that would be the only way to find out. The following year to that Tour de France is one of the great cycling performances in Britain of all time, I think. And this is Eileen Sheridan's record-breaking ride from uh, Land's End to John O'Groats, which she then continued to break the 1,000-mile uh, record and came within not too long um, in, in terms of time of beating the, the men's record as well. And these are some pictures um, that I found at the at the Eileen Sheridan archive. Eileen's still around, by the way. She lives down in Isleworth on the river. But uh, here she is, a less, sub, sub five foot. Um, so this is her. And, and you see there's nobody lining the roads. And there is nobody, like, not because people weren't interested in this, but because it was expressly forbidden to announce that you were going to do a record attempt before you did it. Because they didn't want to make a spectacle out of this sport. They wanted just the rider and the clock and then the press reports afterwards and the sponsorship and all that. And it's a completely different way of looking at cycle sport. It's mm. not about a spectacle, it's about secrecy. Well, I think continental cycling was a celebration, as, as, as they say in that, in, 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 that, uh, in that film before. And I think, I think that this is the thing that, that, that there is some sort of belligerence about British cyclists in history. I mean, Eileen is, is, is a fairly belligerent individual. I think that she wouldn't mind me saying that. But you know, I think there's this sort of this idea that the cycling is all about the, the pain and the punishment, and it's and, it, and it's about getting out there and doing it, but but doing it for yourself and doing it on your own. Whereas, as I say, in, in, in France and Italy, maybe it's just because the weather's better. I don't know. But everybody comes out to enjoy it. And that's uh, yeah, Eileen. I think having some uh, attention. Uh, it looks like liniment. I think to her, to her feet there, doesn't it? Yeah, thought just collapsed in the hedge. Yeah. Um, I, there's an, another, another film that I want to, uh, to show, which is a video of um, a track by the Buff Medways, which is Billy Childish's band, um, artist and musician, uh, lives down in the Medway towns. And this is a film about his, a, a film and a song about his mum. Billy Childish's mum joined the Medway Wheelers about the same time that Eileen Sheridan joined the Coventry cycling club, I think. This is the track that I think, um, and the video that I think sums up a lot about, about cycling in this period.
So that, that is actually uh, Billy Childish's mum in the film there, in both cycling along there um, as she is now, and also in the, in the, uh, in the archival uh, photographs. And um, yeah, it conjures up a lot about life in those times. I mean, the, the estimates are that there were up to 150,000 people out at the weekends time trialling. And, and it wasn't just about the racing. I showed those huts. Um, the, up, up in Ugly in, in Essex and they would ride out to the huts, camp before the huts were built so they would, they would just camp in the fields, then do their racing and then you know, have some fun some fellowship and then, and, then, and then stay over, camp over and then come back the next day and it wasn't just about putting the bike on the car, driving to the sportive, doing your circuit and then, and then you know, coming home. And, and I, I know that's a slightly controversial thing to say, but it does, it, it's instructive, I think, to look back at how people did things before. So this is, this is road racing in uh, early 50s, I think. So this was, there were some road races. There was a Tour of Britain, London Hollyhead, and then the Isle of Man was a big uh, event, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, I mean, eventually <coughs> road racing did kind of take off fairly well in, um, in, in, the, in the UK and, I mean, into the 60s. Um, really started getting... We probably haven't got time to go into it, but there was this great catastrophic break between the National Cycling Union and the upstart British League of Racing Cyclists during the war who wanted to race on the roads. And this is, the, this is a BRC race licence from 1956. And the detail up there that's interesting is... Uh, this is instruction. What are you supposed to do if you're stopped by the police? Which is basically... I do not wish to make, make a statement. Any rider who is accused of any offence should add, I deny that I, dot, 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 whatever he is accused of. Do not say anything else! I can't imagine British Cycling giving this out right now, can you? <laughs> Time trying continued on, and, in, and this is, must be from when... The this, is the, this is the 70s. So this is, so this is the era of, of this new material called drillium, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is, this is <laughs> a spectacular shot of, of, of Alf Engers, who, who was uh, quite a character. He used to arrive at uh, time trials in a, in a, in a jag and a, and a sheepskin coat and then go out and, uh, and, and ride this amazing bike. I mean, he, had, um, <clears throat> he was, wasn't well liked by the, the governing body because he... He used to ride with this sort of head-down style, which was this new sort of way of getting more aerodynamic. Um, and it wasn't regarded very well by the RTTC, who, who, um, who, who were obviously very frightened of people riding into the backs of cars and, 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 uh, and having accidents. But, uh, yeah, this bike is, 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 is all drilled out. You can, you can I mean, yeah, the holes all yeah. the way around. And, and, and actually on the handlebars and as well, handlebars. Which, which, which terrifies and the life here. out of me. Basically, what he was trying to do is lighten his bike as much as possible. This is obviously before carbon fibre and, and the, the frame is steel, but everything else is aluminium. But they used, to, they, they used to send all their parts to these engineers and they'd drill out everything. I mean, it was, it was terrifying because obviously <laughs> things would fail, especially handlebars, and that's not great. All right. Well, thanks, thanks, Guy. Thanks okay. very much. Thank you, everyone. So, a little bit of a statistical detour here. We have cycling from 
1950 to about now, and the number of miles cycled per person in Great Britain per year. So you've got a peak in, in terms of this graph in 1949. Or, and then basically this area that we've been talking about is, is really cycling is, is dying. I don't think there's any other way to put a gloss on this, on this graph here, but, but this is only half the story, and this is the other half. And that's cars, miles travelled per person. Not on the same scale, bicycles on the right-hand scale, but you can't see the scale, so it doesn't matter. But you can see the trend pretty clearly, what's going on. And it's a self-reinforcing trend. The fewer people cycle and choose to drive cars, then the roads become more hostile, people don't want to cycle, and it just repeats itself. And I'm going to take a little journey across, uh, not across the Channel this time, but um, across the North Sea. Um, and we're in the 1960s now. This, is, I think, is the, the moment when... I guess we see the bicycle again being a political instrument, representing something political, a bit like Ruth was talking about with the clarion and, and the white bicycle movement of the Provo in um, Amsterdam, in this short-lived moment in Amsterdam. I guess a sort of radical political group seized upon the milieu of, of youth culture and subcultures to try and get their ideas about how they should challenge the state and challenge capitalism and, and get that off the ground using sort of cultural tools. And, and this is one of the most memorable of their cultural tools, which is these white bicycles, which were given away f uh, freely to be used um, um, in, in Amsterdam. And I think the quote, the quote from one of the Provo leaders was, a bicycle is something, but it's almost nothing. And they also had a white houses plan, which was about providing decent housing for people. Um, and they had health care plans and, 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 and a white chimneys plan, which is about cutting pollution. And so this whole idea of reworking society, really, and, and making places more pleasant to live in and more democratic and, and less about serving the state or serving the market economy. And it got quite heavy, by all accounts. And this is uh, a picture of... Um, some uh, police brutality, um, and uh, obviously the bicycle <laughs> manages to feature with the, the two very good spotters of, uh, of cultural tropes um, in terms of counterculture here. This is the bed-in um, of John and Yoko in Amsterdam when, when they get a, a white bicycle up, uh, up in the bed with them. It kind of makes you think, doesn't it, that, that, that this free bicycle of the 60s in Amsterdam is, is now embodied in London, and it's emblazoned by Barclays Bank, which is you know, one of the pillars of capitalism, but, and also, in a sense, one of the pillars of the state now that you know, we're, through our taxes, into the banks uh, to such a heavy degree. But here we are in uh, 1906, late 60s, the low point, you know, it's a dipping down here. It probably never got as bad as this, at least in terms of the, the, the amount of travelling that was done by bicycle. And, and it's an extraordinary thing to think that Britain led the world in terms of bicycle manufacturing, the rally company producing more bicycles than anybody else, um, and some of the very good bicycles coming out of Britain, but not this one. <laughs> Although this one was wildly popular, I don't think it marks a high point in terms of functional cycling technology from rally. And um, I've got a little clip from Blue Peter um, introducing the chopper that I'm going to want to show you. 
And now, on Thursday, we said we'd have news for cyclists. And if you're a keen cyclist, keep your eyes open. Have a look at these bikes that Val and Peter are riding in now. They really are very modern bikes indeed. I think they're just about the most uh, modern design bikes that I've seen for ages. Well, they remind me of those American dragster racing bikes because the front wheel is much smaller than the back wheel and the rider sits right at the back end here with these high roll bars behind him and looks extremely sporty. Well, there's quite a lot of things that are, are different about them and I'll just get off and show you one thing immediately and that is I can get the stand down the saddle usually bikes have this little tiny hard leather saddle in the middle which is very uncomfortable this has got a lovely long saddle and a back made out of nice soft squishy leather and of course this is a very nice support here when you're riding along and these springs underneath here coil springs if i push down you can see them give there and the idea is that as you ride along nasty bumpy roads they take all the bumps and you don't feel anything they certainly are very comfy indeed what do you think pete yeah i think they're absolutely great but the uh, roll bar at the back certainly wouldn't protect you very much if you came off the bike, but that together with, <coughs> if I can negotiate this, that's it, that together with these high sporting handlebars makes the bike look just like a real racing machine. And it uh, doesn't have conventional gears like you'd expect with a click switch up here on the handlebars. What it has got is a gear lever down here on the crossbar, rather like uh, a car gear lever. You move it backwards and forwards to change gear, and there is an indicator on it across here it shows that it's now in second gear I rode in in third gear but when you look down you can see right away which gear you're in I think it's very well designed yeah, well, everything I say on these bikes seem to be the latest in design I've ridden quite a few bikes on Blue Peter old and new but I should think this is one of the most modern looking bikes I've seen uh, the thing I do like actually is this rear tire it's a it's a lovely broad tire it's got a nice tread there for gripping the road very much like a, a motorbike scramble tire above it behind the saddle there's a, a nice large reflector and on each of the pedals too they've got reflectors so you can be seen at night quite well by other road users well you might think uh, we look fairly comfortable on these bikes which we are and you might also think that we're a little big for the bikes and we are again aren't we but uh, of course when you usually start off riding a bike you start on a three-wheel trike and I, I was quite surprised that time that I took part in the London to Brighton cycle run to discover that a tricycle was taking part. It was a full-size one though, not a little one, and the lady riding it was thoroughly enjoying herself. I don't know what message you take from that film, but the, the message that I take from that was that in, that must have been the late, in the early 70s, to ride a bicycle, you either had to be a child or wildly eccentric, a freak. <laughs> Which kind of makes sense if you look at how much cycling is going on in the country at that time. And to talk us through the period, I'd like to invite Patrick Field to, to uh, turn his microphone on. Um, Patrick, is that green? It's green. Welcome, Patrick. Patrick Hi is, there. Patrick is a bit of a hero 
of mine. If you've ever heard the bike show, you will know that. If you've ever heard of this bike ride, you will also know that. This is the Dunwich Dynamo. This is the start of the Dunwich Dynamo, um, the greatest bicycle ride that starts in London. It happens every year, um, the Saturday night nearest the full moon in July. 20th of July this year. 20th of July this year, put in your diaries. A ride through the night to the beach at Dunwich in Suffolk. And uh, there you see all the cyclists on the beach after having their ride. And so Patrick is the founder of the London School of Cycling. And um, all roads in, in London that are roads that are cycling roads, which is all roads. Most of them, yeah. Lead to Patrick. Except in, the Westway, soon to be a cycling soon road. Soon to be a cycling road. Lead to Patrick in, in one way or another. And Patrick, I want to dive in here because we, we've, we've got to move on a little bit. Um, with the London to Brighton ride of 1976. Yes. Um, you went on this ride. I did, yes. This was, this, 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 we, we started off with the London to Brighton, and, and this was a, a new London to Brighton, not the antique bicycle novelty ride we saw on Blue Peter, but this is a grand mayday bicycle rally, more bicycles, cleaner cities. Why did you go on this ride, and how did you hear about it? I was told about it, someone had seen a flyer, and they said, you like cycling, Patrick, you should go on that ride. And, and was, was I'm like? here only as a witness, not as a historian. It was, we set off from Speaker's Corner at 6am, I think, oh, 7am. No, I had probably had to get up at 6am to get to Speaker's Corner, that's why I remember 6am. And it was, there were one or two people who looked like they knew how to ride a bike, one or two sort of, I remember a clubman with a beard, like a young, who was obviously a good rider, I realise in retrospect. But mostly it was kind of alternative hippie-ish types and sort of middle-aged mis misfits. And was that an accurate cross-section of the people who were riding bikes at that time? What, what was it like riding a bike in London in the mid-70s? Well, it was quite an exceptional thing to do. People didn't really do it. And to give you an idea, if you saw someone riding a bike while you were riding a bike, it's quite likely that you'd seen them before, especially if you had a regular journey and you'd go, oh, there's that bloke who I often see there. It was quite an unexpected thing to do. And after the, after the Second World War, there was no anticipation that anyone would ride a bike for any other reason than because they couldn't afford anything else, unless they were riding for some kind of cult sport use. So the quality of utility bikes was really low, like down and down and down. I suppose you could still, you could buy Pashleys, but they were very expensive and even then were kind of museum pieces, even more so than they are today. It was like being part of a vanishing tribe that was stubbornly refusing to vanish. It was kind of, what are you still doing that for? Well, fast forward a few years, and Patrick, you were involved in that anti-M11 link road campaign and reclaim the streets and this is in the 1990s and we're going to have to rush this well the m11 old. link road it's there was bureaucratic campaigning against it yes from the 80s i think probably these are pictures by nick Cobb. camden town yes and that was out on the m41 yes that was shepherd's bush funny day uh, under there there are people digging the street under the dress with with little drills or, or hammers Quite big drills big drills and that's the rinky dink sound system had to get bicycle pedal powered sound system. And uh, this is the um, protest against the M11 link road, a sort of flashpoint by this old tree 
George and Green once George, did. Yeah, and, and, and what my, I've got a kind of interesting thesis here that this protest was a schooling ground for some people who are quite prominent characters in cycling today. Roger Geffen, uh, head of policy at the Cyclist Touring Club, probably in the tree when that photograph was taken. Dave Dansky, Cycle Training UK. Yep. Um, Bill Chidley, I think he was around. I don't know if he was in the tree um, or in the tent. Um, Buffalo Bill Chidley, uh, yes. Bicycle messenger and yes. bike poloist. Patrick Field in a starring role in Gorky Park. It's my days in the Moscow police, yes. So I kind of feel that, that we are connected to those times of, of, of politics and resistance in the, in, the, in the bicycle, even though we are here now in the V&A and the great halls of, of mainstream high culture. The, well, the big difference, I think, is the internet. That's the key thing in the development of a consciousness because it, all these crazy things that are bleeding into the mainstream now were always happening, but there was no way for hobbyists in Seattle to talk to hobbyists in Copenhagen. And we also have a British winner of the Tour de France driving it. We have cycling cool and fashionable and desirable. Uh, we have people getting out on the streets still asking for uh, better conditions. And we have politicians who might be listening. We'll find <laughs> out if they can actually do anything. He's got and, no mudguards. And we still have right. the traditional values harking back to uh, the heyday of British cycling represented here in this uh, rather cool advertising campaign by Brooks. Um, I, we're going to have to vacate this room. If you could join me in thanking my guests for their part in... <laughs> and, you, and you can hear more of all of them and a lot more of me on The Bike Show on Resonance FM, which is also available as a podcast on the internet.